none of this is new for us, right? This is a battle that we have been fighting since the beginning of time. I think the pandemic has also, while it has exacerbated inequalities, I feel as though it's also raised awareness in a positive way around the root causes of economic inequality. What we found is that, you know, many African Americans have a very low, what I call Alzheimer's disease literacy. Um, and so we created uh, an educational program to educate uh, African Americans about Alzheimer's. Hi everyone, I'm Peter Caldas, the CEO of the American Society on Aging, and welcome to another episode of Future Proof. In this season, we're talking about equity and justice, and I'm just absolutely delighted that we have a special guest here with us today who um, comes from a university that's been a strong partner of ours here at ASA, the University of South Southern California. Um, we are here with Karen Lincoln. She's an associate professor of social work at USC's uh, Dwarak Peck School of Social Work. She also directs the USC Hartford Center of Excellence in Geriatric Social Work. And today, we'll be addressing the issues of equity and justice and how they intersect with Karen's important work researching and designing programming around Black mental health across the life course. Karen, welcome to Future Proof. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I want to get started with what's been going on in our country these last few weeks, um, especially coming on the heels of long months of continuing to shelter in place uh, in California because of COVID. I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about how um, the recent protests have impacted your work in Los Angeles. Sure. Well, obviously the, um, the protests around racial injustice um, and police brutality have affected all of us. Um, it has definitely raised awareness about racial injustice. And interestingly enough, you know, when I talk about this topic to people, I have to prepare them to sort of understand how many African Americans might respond to this because this, none of this is new for us, right? This is a battle that we have been fighting since the beginning of time. And with this heightened awareness of, of a lot of people in this country and around the world, we're now sort of experiencing a very interesting time in our lives, which um, comes with hope, with, it comes with trauma, um, being re-traumatized, um, um, the opportunity for change, right? And so the work that, that I'm doing, all of that is encompassed in, in, in the work that I do. And honestly, the major impact that it's had is that, you know, with the protests, we have to find different ways of getting around the city, really. Um, and because we serve under-resourced communities, um, we are used to uh, doing a lot with a little. Uh, it's just a matter of planning our movements and engaging in social distancing and all of the, the public health sort of mitigating um, standards that we're all trying to abide by. But um, I think just in terms of the conversations and, and working with older adults, particularly African-American older adults who have lived through um, many of these types of experiences, it is impacting them in different ways. And so we are you know, partnering with our community partners who are focused on um, mental health issues more than we have before, um, substance abuse issues more 
than we have before, right? So we are sort of seeing some emerging health concerns with older adults and with the biggest isolation, right? So we're, because we have these connections in the community, it's allowed us to, you know, re-engage with these partnerships in a new way, right? Um, to serve to serve the, the, the population that we serve. Let's let's talk about some of the um, the issues that you're seeing with the population that you, uh, under normal circumstances, would be studying. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. With what's come about as a result of the pandemic and the protests, I'm wondering if you sort of are shaking your head, saying, "Yes, we know isolation is uh, impacts one's health. Yes, we know this. It's just that the pandemic and some of these protests have exacerbated." those issues or you know what other issues um have come out to the forefront now as a result of where we are right now i think that yes you're right there has been an exacerbation of issues that have been prevalent in our community so i haven't seen anything new um i have seen um something that we haven't seen in a while and that's sort of fear and anxiety around the pandemic in particular Um, because engaging in social distancing, for example, it can be very difficult um, for many African-Americans, which is the population that I primarily serve. Uh, It has a lot to do with um, where people live, uh, who they live with. Uh, And so it's the anxiety around um, living in congregant housing, for example, has increased the level of, of fear and which is impacting sort of physical health conditions as well as uh, mental health conditions. So I think it's really testing our coping skills um, and sort of stretching them to the, to the boundaries. And I, I think the confusion in terms of the messaging, specifically how do you do these things? You know, how do you quarantine when you have multiple generations in your home? You know, how do you engage in social distancing when you have people who have essential jobs? Who are sort of coming in and out and so really not being able to have information about how to do these really important things has increased the level of anxiety and, and fear of getting infected. You know you talked at the beginning about how many of the uh, issues we're seeing today is nothing new right in fact two years ago you wrote about this you guest edited an issue of generations on economic and social inequality in America and I was hoping you could share any change in the status of these populations who find themselves um, in poverty. You know, what, what have you noted? What have you found in just the last few years? Well, one of the things that we found is that, as, as we talked about, some of these issues of economic inequality have been exacerbated among a lot of different populations. But with the impact of the um, pandemic, particularly with um, African-Americans and Latinos, um, we are seeing increased rates of of unemployment that we've ever seen, right? And so I think it was a couple of days ago, there was a conversation around the increase in unemployment across Americans, but it is significantly higher among African-Americans. And I think the fact that you know, economic insecurity has been a prevalent problem, um, it continues to be a problem, it's a bigger problem, particularly when um, housing is unstable and then the pandemic hits. Employment is unstable and then the pandemic hits. 
um, schools are closed. And so when children are already sort of in schools that are under-resourced, there are going to be significant impacts of that. And so I think that although all of us have been impacted in some way, there are some communities um, that might not recover. And so that's my, one of my biggest concerns is that many African-Americans have been hardest hit by this pandemic. Some will be able to recover, um, but many will not. I think the pandemic has also, while it has exacerbated inequalities, I feel as though it's also raised awareness in a positive way. I, I feel like it's raised awareness around the root causes of economic inequality. And you have more and more people, particularly people who look like me, talking about these issues. And I'm wondering, how do you feel about the evolution? Is that, do you find the same, the same awareness has been, that the awareness has been elevated? I do, I absolutely do. And that is definitely one positive thing that has come out of this is that many of these conversations that have been happening in communities for decades um, are more prevalent, not just in the United States. I mean, they're happening all over the world. And I think that is a really helpful sort of platform when you have this conversation here and it's beyond the local level, it's beyond one incident, um, there's a persistence of momentum because oftentimes you have some of these awful traumatic incidences and you have some reaction and then it kind of fades away. People forget. But this is one that has is long lasting and the spread is much wider. Right? And so it's very difficult for the conversation to lull right? Because the impact has been so much bigger. So that has definitely been um, a positive that has come out of this. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that's the case? Why you think it hasn't <clears throat> waned? You know, it's interesting. I have to think about that. I think um, because I think part of it has to do with millennials, you know, and younger people who are really growing up in a different time, uh, who are more racially diverse, who are more biracial and multiracial, are interacting more. And then of course you have social media that spreads news very, very quickly. And we have now been able to see that many of our young people are activists. You know, they're, they're advocates, they're looking for something to make sense of the world. And I think this, you know, the marches and the protests and all of these conversations have provided something for them to hold on to, for them to focus on. And I think it's been wonderful to see more young people and more diverse, racially and ethnically diverse young people, you know, out marching and protesting and, 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 and lending their voices um, to this particular cause. It's almost become a pop cultural phenomenon, hasn't it? When you have major corporations, major brands also finally stepping up and sort of challenging their own versions of what they see as the status quo too, right? I mean, what, what do you think of, of that movement? I think that's interesting because I think that it is positive and that there is this raised, you know, increased awareness I also think that if you find yourself heading or being in the top sort of administrative level of any company or agency where you have a diverse workforce, you really must respond to this diversity because it's a conversation that's happening all over the world. The other thing that, that I'm sort of thinking about is 
because we have such diversity and because this is a global movement, so to speak, I won't call it a movement, but it is a global phenomenon. Um, I think there's some level of responsibility by people who are heading some of these companies to address it because so many people across generations, across race, ethnicity, gender identity, age, are invested and involved. And if you are heading a company and you don't respond to this in some way, there will be economic ramifications. Um, and so I think that it's, it's a financial decision that some people might want to make to engage in this conversation or to respond in some way, because I think we've witnessed what happens when people don't issue a response or don't respond in some way, right? So it's sort of, it's a very interesting um, reaction. And, it's, and I'm not sure, you know, who's responding for what reasons. I'm just glad that people are actually responding. Well, it is amazing to your point earlier about where all the new advocates have come from right? Whether it's a younger generation or the corporate boardroom, um, but at least they've come out, right? Yes. And, and they're really trying to push a thoughtful uh, agenda. Speaking of advocates, though, I, I want to touch a little bit on your work uh, mm -hmm. with the Advocates for African-American Elders and what sure. the group's uh, docket now is, and, and particularly in response to this latest uh, awareness setting around racial equity. Yes, yeah, so one of the things that we've done is very practical. Um, so when the pandemic hit, and really when the, we have a safer at home order here in um, California. And so when that order uh, was passed and we had to sort of stay at home, uh, we were really concerned about the older adults that we serve because many of them are served by senior centers. They get their meals. They have a lot of their social interaction from these senior centers. And some of these senior centers do provide, you know, some very critical care um, for many of our seniors, particularly in low-income communities. And so we contacted many of the directors of these centers and said, what, what do you need? What can we do? And they indicated that it wasn't food. I mean, that seemed, that seemed to be the more prevalent, obvious need for um, many low-income people. And it's still true, but it wasn't food. It was hygiene products, um, disinfectants, and, you know, uh, like Clorox and, and wipes and, and masks and gloves. And so what we did was we took whatever funds we had and we asked for, you know, donations and we prepared hygiene kits for seniors and 200 of them. And we distributed them to the senior centers and they were able to identify those seniors who were most in need to get those, those hygiene kits. And so that's one of the things we did because we were also hearing that many of the seniors that we work with, you know, once they realized that they needed to stock up on certain things and they needed to get disinfectants and, and things to clean their homes, they'd go to the stores and those products were gone. And mind you, we're serving seniors who live in food deserts, right? So there aren't a lot of grocery stores to begin with, right? So we knew that there was gonna be a high need. And so we started to collect these items to distribute um, to seniors in the community. And do you think that given the investments, the emergency investments that were made by, by the federal government and a lot of additional dollars trickle down in response to the pandemic, 
do you see it trickling into communities that you serve or have they, do they continue to be forgotten? They continue to be forgotten. It, it's not trickling down to, you know, really poor and low income communities. And, and also for those who might get a benefit, it's so small, um, particularly when you have, you know, seniors and their families who are already in debt or, you know, already um, in need of funds to buy food and to keep the lights on, right? So if you receive $400, you know, there's already a, a big a big hole that you have to fill with it. So it doesn't really go far. And so I think that, you know, the needs are just so much greater. Um, so much greater for people who already are under-resourced, right? So any additional resource that people get, it's just not enough to lift them up out of these sort of poor levels of, so, of socioeconomic status. Yeah. And the needs are also greater for those who may have uh, comorbidities or Alzheimer's. And I, and I wanted to touch a little bit on um, Alzheimer's, uh, Alzheimer's disease in your work and your research. I know that the rates of Alzheimer's in the Black community are higher than in other communities, but I wonder why is that the case? Well, what's been reported is that um, because Alzheimer's is associated with a host of risk factors that are related to chronic health conditions, that the higher prevalence of say hypertension, diabetes, uh, heart disease um, are higher in African-Americans than we then are, you know, have a higher risk for Alzheimer's disease. Um, actually, that, that's true, uh, but also things that haven't been talked about much that's just, just now beginning to um, be published in journals and getting researched funding for are the social determinants of health, right? And so because we've had 400 plus clinical trials and no cure, um, many funding agencies are turning their dollars to support brain health, right? Prevention or risk reduction efforts and sort of looking at ways that we can reduce risk and linking those strategies with where people live, right? And so pollution has been linked to higher risk, right? Um, we know that social isolation is a factor. We basically know that where people live um, is associated with their risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so we're now looking at, you know, poverty and, and financial strain as a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, where before it was all sort of neurological, right? It was all sort of biological, but we can now see these more external social factors that are increasing um, the risk for Alzheimer's. I'm wondering if some of these studies or this new effort will also touch on stigma and mm. how um, we need to fight it uh, because it exists in so many different communities that are uh, disproportionately impacted by Alzheimer's. I'm wondering if you could share your work on that. Sure. Well, we um, at Advocates for African American Elders, we, we serve seniors in the community. So I'm a researcher, but I also have this, this community-based program. And so one of the things that we focus on is health education. And so although we get calls from people who need help with a variety of resources, um, I started to notice a much higher volume of calls associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, whether it was someone who was concerned about their memory or an adult child who had some concerns about their parent. And um, 
because the volume of calls that were primarily associated with Alzheimer's disease was so high, we started to provide education in the community about Alzheimer's disease. And what we found is that, you know, many African Americans have a very low, what I call Alzheimer's disease literacy. We don't know what it is. Um, we don't recognize the signs and the symptoms. And if you can't recognize the signs and the symptoms, then you don't seek help. So back to your earlier question, one of the reasons that many African Americans have such a high prevalence rate is because we don't know we have it. You know, we don't recognize when something's wrong uh, and we have our own cultural beliefs around sort of memory loss. Right? Um, and so we created uh, an educational program called Brainworks to educate uh, African Americans about Alzheimer's disease. And so we use a very innovative, creative format, a talk show. Um, we use text messages to reinforce, uh, culturally tailored text messages to sort of reinforce the strategies and tips around reducing your risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so far it's been very um, effective for increasing Alzheimer's disease literacy for African Americans. I love that idea, and I love using technology, even if it's the most basic form in the, in the form of texting. I think that's that's wonderful. I'm wondering, have you used technology in any other way? No, right now we're just using it for uh, BrainWorks. Um, however, I am working on a project right now uh, to submit to the National Institutes of Health to use an app. Um, for relaxation training to address hypertension and stress in African-Americans, particularly those who are living in senior housing and congregate housing. And that app is phone-based, um, but it also has a virtual reality component to it. So we're going to test it out to see, you know, how we can do with it. Now with cell phones, you know, that's a tricky. I mean, it seems low tech, but for many African-Americans, it's high tech. I mean, we have people in our um, research project that didn't have phones. Um, we had people who had phones, but not smartphones, right? So still, it's, it's, you know, it's not something that's widely available, but it is one of the most widely available pieces of technology among African-Americans. So that's why we use cell phones. I love that approach and that application. I mean, good luck on that application. But I'm wondering, if I were the NIH, I'd want to know, how are you going to bridge that, that digital divide to be able to, access, to provide the access to that? Have you, I'm, right. I'm sure you've given that thought. <laughs> I have. I have. Well, one of the things we learned with BrainWorks is that most African Americans had a cell phone. And the reason that I chose a cell phone is because the research indicates that, you know, um, broadband access is very low among African Americans, and it's extremely low among older African Americans, with only 38% having access to the internet. And so, but cell phones most have access, and it was the only, um, device and piece of technology where African-Americans had a higher rate of using their cell phones to search for health-related information than whites. And I thought, that's it. We have to use the cell phone. So I think we're, we're, our, our research participants are used to using the cell phone now. We were able to train those who didn't have a cell phone to use a cell phone and to text. So we now know that if provided with a phone, people will know how to use it. So I think with, with that evidence, I'm pretty confident that if we're able to put the phone in the hands of someone, that we'll be able to train them to use it. I think that's right. I think there's a real willingness to learn if you are 
able to be patient and respectful in how you deploy training folks. I mean, I, I think it's a powerful tool and, and I think technology, we're just the start of it, of deploying technology for all sorts of uh, good here in this space. Uh, Kat, I, I want to I talk to you a little bit about one question uh, that I've asked all my guests here. Um, and as we, we wind down our, our conversation, I want to ask you why you're in this space. Um, specifically now during this time, I'm wondering if you could just share with us why you've chosen to remain such a strong advocate and, and researcher. Uh, uh, in equity and justice for older adults? Yeah, I think that, I don't know if, if it's part of my nature, my legacy, but I, I think about my grandmother, particularly when we focus on older adults. And, um, you know, I supported myself through school. I didn't have, you know, parents who can pay for that. And um, when I was at UC Berkeley as an undergraduate, I was actually working full time and going to Berkeley full time as well. I slept for two and a half hours a day um, until I finished. I worked graveyard shift on the Golden Gate Bridge. And uh, I had a conversation with my grandmother because one of our um, assignments in a class was to, uh, was to interview um, a role model, an African-American female role model. And I was scratching my head trying to figure out, well, who will this person be? And I thought, my grandmother. And so I interviewed my grandmother, who um, had a third grade education. Uh, she grew up in the South. She had 11 children, including my mother. And she worked so hard. She worked so hard. Um, my grandfather was a sharecropper. She was a maid. She spent all day taking care of someone else's family. And then she walked home to take care of her own family. And she told me that all she wanted for her children was for them to graduate from high school. That was her biggest wish. And they all did. And here I am an undergraduate at UC Berkeley talking to my grandmother about her raising these 11 children, washing all of these clothes by hand, cooking all of this food. And I said, grandmother, how did you do it? And she said, I worked until my heart slept. And it forever impacted me, forever. I will never forget that moment. And I don't know if it just propelled me forward to do more, but I couldn't stop at a bachelor's degree. I had to continue on this journey to go as far as I could, to do as much as I could for people like my grandmother. I'm sure she's extraordinarily proud and probably was at that moment when you asked her uh, to be the subject of your interview on who a role model was. I think that's, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you for sharing that story, Karen. That's a great, great way to end the conversation. Very powerful. <laughs> thank you. You've left me speechless. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really enjoyed our conversations today, Karen, and I hope you come back so we can talk some more. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on Future Proof, and we hope you join us for another episode. Till next time.